I bet you weren't expecting to hear the Qom sounds of Shaw Majozi when you downloaded a podcast on Shakespeare. But Majozi's song, Huku, couldn't be more appropriate for this first episode of Shake the Sword, a podcast produced by the Tsikinia Shaka Center at Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. The Tsikinia Shaka Center, or TCC for short, seeks to promote research and practice at the intersection of Shakespeare, transnationalism, and multilingualism. Born and raised in the Limpopo province of South Africa, with Shitsonga as her mother tongue, Shoma Jozi lived in Tanzania as a teenager and learned to speak Kiswahili. So you'll hear both these languages along with English in her music. And that bridge between South and East Africa is the perfect introduction to the discussion you'll be listening to today. I'm Chris Thurman, the director of the Tsikinia Shaka Center, and I'm excited to share with you the rich world of Shakespeare in translation. In our first season of Shake the Sword, we'll be focusing on African Shakespeare's, and there's no better place to start than the East African region. Kiswahili is spoken by more than 100 million people in at least 10 countries, and it is a national language in Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda, and the Democratic Republic of Congo. If you're an eager consumer of Shakespearean podcasts, you'll no doubt know about the Folger Shakespeare Library's Shakespeare Unlimited series, which includes an episode on Shakespeare in Swahililand. That episode gives some helpful background on Shakespeare's presence in East Africa during the colonial period, but there's so much more to be said on the subject of Swahili Shakespeare's. So much, in fact, that we've divided this episode into two parts. We'll start by focusing on the context of the Kiswahili Shakespeare translations undertaken by Julius Nyerere, liberation hero, political philosopher, and the first president of independent Tanzania. In part two, we'll explore this complex history further and turn our attention to more recent and contemporary practice. Join me as we learn more from two experts on the subject. Dr. Kimani Njogu is an independent scholar, a lexicographer, and a renowned advocate for Kiswahili in Kenya through Chakita, the National Kiswahili Association, of which he is the founding chair. Dr. Serena Talento is assistant professor at the Chair of Literatures and African Languages at the University of Bayreuth, where she teaches Swahili and thematic courses on translation studies, particularly in relation to African contexts. She's also an affiliate of the Tsikinia Shaka Center. Before we go any further, Let's fill our ears with some Shakespearean Swahili. Here's a snippet of Kenyan theatre company Bitter Pills' Wanawake Waheri Wawinza, a Kiswahili translation and adaptation of The Merry Wives of Windsor by Joshua Ogutu. This recording was made at Shakespeare's Globe in London during the Globe to Globe Festival in 2012 and stars Ogutu himself as Mistress Quickly and Mrisho Mpoto as the buffoonish Falstaff. <laughs>
The first question that I'd like to ask is not about Shakespeare, but instead to give us all an idea of the ways in which Kiswahili as a regional language might operate in different national contexts. And so, although we've already heard something about your respective biographies and backgrounds, I thought you could give us a little bit more insight into your linguistic repertoire by each of you sharing for us the national context or contexts in which you have grown up in, let's say, uh, or acquired Kiswahili as a language. And that will give us some insight into the local nuances around uh, Kiswahili's usage in the East African region. Kimani, could we begin with you? Yes, um, so thanks a lot for the opportunity to have uh, this discussion uh, today. I, I actually didn't grow up from the coastal of Kenya where Kiswahili is the main language. I, I grew up in upcountry Kenya, uh, but in my teenage years, I was taught by a lecturer from Zanzibar who had a tremendous influence on me um, and really encouraged me to continue work in Kiswahili. So it's I think that interaction in the earliest in the earlier years of my life, which really opened the door for me to do lots of work in Kiswahili. So most of my writings and my teachings have been around um, Kiswahili, both in terms of language and literature. Uh, quite a bit of writing also um, with the two languages, uh, and also just to indicate that I was the founding chair of the National Kiswahili Association for Kenya, and also sat in the, uh, represented Kenya in the establishment of the East African Kiswahili Commission, uh, which is uh, the instrument that develops Kiswahili in the region. And just also to mention that I sit in the, in the African Academy of uh, Languages, uh, where we are, you know, really uh, encouraging the use of Kiswahili as a Pan-African language. So that's the space that I occupy, uh, both in terms of um, advocacy for the language and writing and teaching, really trying to encourage uh, the growth of Kiswahili. Uh, and, and of course, finally, um, you know, I work closely with users of Kiswahili, you know, uh, from the region uh, generally, as well as globally. So that's that's my context, Chris. Okay. My first encounter with Swahili was 17 years ago, the day I enrolled at the University of Naples, L'Orientale. Um, so I started studying a Swahili language there. And the good thing from studying at that university is that you do not simply study the language, but uh, you study thoroughly the literature, the history of uh, the Eastern African uh, coast or East Africa in general. Um, and we also have insights into sociology, musicology. So this is uh, my relationship with Swahili, which started some time ago. And I continue to study the language and digging into the language in my studies. So further studies with MA and my PhD and my research has been totally devoted to the study of um, Swahili uh, translations from other languages, from an array of languages into Swahili. And at the moment, I'm also um, teaching at the University of Bayreuth, um, undergraduate and graduate student. And I've mostly been engaged with um, the Tanzanian context. So um, the, the texts I've been studying um, are mostly from Tanzanian authors and um, I forgot to say I've spent also some time on the Tanzanian coast 
to get more of uh, an insight of the language as being non a non-native speaker. Swahili is not my first my first language, so yeah, that's that's it. Well, maybe what we can do is um, is pick up on your perspective, Serena, and start to think about Shakespeare, because I suppose for anyone who has an association with Shakespeare and Kiswahili, they would go automatically to Mualimu Nyerere and to, to Julius Nyerere's translations of, of Shakespeare's plays. Many people, I suppose, think specifically of the Julius Caesar in 1963, I think it was published. So my question, and this is betraying my bias as a South African, my interest in Shakespeare and translation in South Africa has led to an unpicking or a debunking of the narrative that in South Africa, for example, all translation starts with Sol Plaiki, who is an equivalent figure. And I would be interested to know if either of you would challenge the idea that Shakespeare in Kiswahili starts with Nyerere. Is there a prior history? Is there a background that we should know about? Okay, that's a good that's a good question. Um, yeah, the idea is that Shakespearean translation started with Nyerere, and actually this is also how Nyerere's texts well were publicized. If you look at the blurb of his text, um, the Merchant of Venice, Mabepari uh, Wavenisi, this is presented as the first translation of the Merchant of Venice. Indeed, uh, Shakespeare came with the um, with the missionaries. And at the end of the 19th century, well, mid-19th century, we have Edward Steer, who was a bishop in Zanzibar, and he translated Charles and Mary uh, Lamb Tales from Shakespeare, um, has Hadithi Zakingereza, so English stories. And this is uh, 1867. And those are kind of uh, summarized uh, translations, so uh, prose summarized translations of uh, Shakespearean uh, plays. And I could also find in, in one bibliography a reference to one translation of The Merchant of Venice, translated as Mfani Biashara wa Venisi, published by London Sheldon Press. But I, in my research, I've never been able to put my hands on this text. So it is virtually absent, and it also dates the end of the 19th century. I was never able to find it, only in, um, in bibliographies. And then... Alice Werner, an important uh, Swahili scholar, um, she has contributed a lot to African studies and especially the studies of classical Swahili poetry. And she recounts in a text from 1916 to have recorded a story from um, uh, uh, someone from the Tana region. Um, she, she, she reports to have recorded a version of The Merchant of Venice. But she says that the, the, the person who told the story was told the story by an Indian and the Indian uh, could not remember where he got the story. So we have kind of this traveling narrative who, who at a certain point uh, loses its track. And then, of course, um, Shakespearean texts were used in, colonial, uh, in the colonial syllabus. So in schools, they were read and they were also performed. Um, so they were already part of a repertoire yeah i think i think uh, as Serena, you you're so right um because i find it quite interesting that edward stair found it necessary to to translate shakespeare in those earlier days because of course 
the the early missionaries were interested in introducing to uh, East Africans English literature, you know, uh, and, and therefore introducing the narrative especially. Uh, and 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 if you look at those earlier efforts, uh, it was almost to say, look, I mean, you know, there is something to be learned, and. The fact that for Edward Steyer, um, what he did was to talk about uh, we, you know, it's almost like to owe and to be owed, you know, other than the idea of the merchant of Venice, is like you, you know, the people who are dead, who, who owe each other things. Um, so the translation itself is about owing each other. Muia now and I we were. So um, uh, again, suggesting a certain interpretation. Yeah, it, it's very, very interesting. And also when you look at the development of Kiswahili in East Africa and the role of Edward Steyer himself in pushing the, the Unguja dialect, the, lang, the, the, the dialect spoken in Zanzibar, as the one that needed to be adopted for the whole region, it suggests that he was interested not just in the literature, but also in in dialectology and the dialects that would actually form uh, texts, uh, kind of drive texts, whether those texts are translated or original. So very, very interesting. I wasn't aware of the Alice Wana um, story, so it's really nice to to hear that story about the travel narrative uh, and the Indian connection because uh, it would be interesting to see whether in the later years Shakespeare still travels back to India uh, through Kiswahili. There are quite a few strands that emerge from the wonderful accounts you've both just given. One I think we can return to later in the conversation, which is how do people in these different East African countries encounter Shakespeare today in education contexts or otherwise. But I wonder if the point that uh, you've just made, Kimani, about different dialects Mm -hmm. and standardization has uh, an aspect to it which is linked to Shakespeare. Again, if one thinks about the the prominence from an external perspective of a figure like Nyerere uh, when it comes to to Shakespeare translations into Kiswahili, I wonder if one could say that uh, translations of Shakespeare into Kiswahili have facilitated uh, an idea of standardization or maybe have given greater prominence to certain dialects over others. Or is that not really a feature of the of the history of of translating Shakespeare into Kiswahili? I think it is a feature. Um, so you see, Nyerere comes into Shakespeare in 1963 uh, when he translates uh, Julius Caesari. Um, now, of course, prior to 1963, there was the Interterritorial Language Commission uh, of 1929, 1930 which set in motion the standardization of uh, of Kiswahili in terms of orthography, in terms of, you know, um, um, representation, um, and, and so on. And, and so Nyerere had um, the benefit of uh, going back to a standard form, including in the writings of uh, other Tanzanian um, uh, writers, such as... Um, uh, Shaban Robert um, and poets who were using the standard form uh, presented to them through the Interterritorial Language Commission. 
And of course, the, the Inter-Territorial Language Commission recommended that the Zanzibar dialect be the dialect that is used for the standardization of Kiswahili uh, and, and so on. Um, of course, there was a lot of debate in those earlier days why pick on the Zanzibar dialect and not the Mombasa dialect, or even the Lamu dialect, which had huge uh, tradition of, of writing, and, and especially poetry. Uh, but of course, there was consensus that the Zanzibar dialect was the, was the preferred dialect. So Nyerere used that uh, dialect as the standard form in his translation. And therefore, in a sense, the translation uh, helped in the solidification of the Zanzibar dialect. And, and of course, because those, those um, texts were then consequently used in schools, the um, students benefited uh, from this standard form of Kiswahili. Uh, he, he could easily have written in, written in any other uh, dialect, but he chose to write in the standard form. And in fact, the, uh, because uh, in Kenya, the translations were really used, especially in high school, um, as, as set books. One could say that his translation not only inspired the use of standard Kiswahili, but introduced into the, into the lexicon of students terms that were very new, such as mabepari, you know, because, you see, that was not a term that would be used in the Kenyan context easily. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and, and yet, you see, for the first time, our students were encountering the concept of capitalists, mm-hmm. you know, um, people who put private property at the center of their of, of their lives. So, I, in fact, in my in my case, I can say that even the word mabepari, I came to know of it uh, as a term to describe our relation with money through through the Tanzanian roots, and and that was of course Nyerere's. So, I would say, uh, no doubt about it, he helped solidify. Uh, the standard variety of, of Kiswahili through the translation. Um, Professor Kimani is raising a very interesting point about how the translation and, and the language that Nyerere uses, how the translation is used to strengthen the Swahili language and how is it also used to show the capability of uh, the language to be a literary language and to convey various um, concepts and aspects of human life and also non-human life. Um, and so how the, the language that he was using was, uh, was used so to show that the Swahili language had this capability to grow, to develop to draw from its own resources and to cope with all the necessities of a literary and the national language. So this is a very important point that Professor is raising here. And I don't know if we will go back to that later. Well, let's, I mean, let's, let's continue in that vein. I think if it's, a, it's a very interesting consideration because it, uh, it speaks to translation, I suppose, as a political project mm-hmm. and the inevitability that, that one associates the wider historical context of, of Nyerere's translations in particular with independence, the independence movement in Africa. So would you say that there is a contestation in the reception history of Nyerere's translations which hinges around the question of whether these serve primarily a political linguistic project, which we would 
all affirm is, is valuable and was, was necessary at the time? Or is there a sense in which they can be assessed or revisited or have been on what we might think of as aesthetic grounds? We all know that's a false binary between aesthetics and politics, but there seems to be in me that, that some suggestion there of the awkwardness, perhaps, of the prominence of Nyerere's translations because of who he was. On the one hand, that's one consideration. And then the other consideration is, is there significance in their historical moment when it comes to a kind of political linguistic project so over-determining that some of their nuanced uh, aesthetic features are have, have not been recognized by subsequent readers or performers or, or language historians? Okay, let's start firstly with the fact that, of course, Nyerere was a man with a great power, and he used also this this power to assist his uh, political uh, and intellectual project of Kudenga uh, Taifa, now building the nation. So uh, when his translations appeared, the country was experiencing this um, recovery from uh, the downfall of uh, uh, English rule. So the country had to be built anew, as Nyerere used to say, and also by means of intellectual, uh, the intellectual effort. And I have to say that as Nyerere used to say in an interview, he started this translation as a sort of um, so as a sort of entertainment um, while studying at Scotland. So in his free time, he needed to, um, to clear his mind with some refreshing activity and he decided to translate the text. The text was published. And, and, then, and then I think he realized how much power the literary text obtained when he was sent out there. And he also mentioned the, and this is why he also came to uh, retranslate the text. Julius Caesar was translated again in 1969, and a translation that he did because he wanted to clear some mistakes and to give the the text um, a, a more Bantu appeal. That's what what he says in in his introduction, and to make it more um, familiar to the. Yeah, to the, the Swahili-speaking community. So um, he started this project as an entertainment, and then um, uh, the text was sent out there. And the first um, reactions were also quite of doubtful, um, because some 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 intellectuals saw the choice of Shakespeare as this um, nostalgia. Why Nyerere is translating Shakespeare in the time where, where, where we are trying to build a language, a literature, a country on our own resources. But then, uh, of course, this project resonated with the bigger project of um, building this national literature um, and reach the resources of Swahili. And as Professor Kimani was saying, also to um, extend the, the, the terminology of Swahili and to demonstrate that translations could also offer the possibility um, to this language to grow and to be the language of everyone. I, I think that it is important for us to understand the context of Nyerere at the time. Look at him from a political point of view. You say, look, um, at that moment, he was imagining the East African Federation, for example. Mm. So there was conversation around that time about the unity of the East African countries. And if you recall, he had, in fact, suggested that 
Tanzania can delay its independence as it waits for uh, other East African countries to be ready for independence. So he was already imagining um, an East African solidarity, an East African federation. Mm. At the same time, around this, that period, um, there was huge conversation uh, with Nkrumah uh, on, um, on Pan-Africanism and the whole question of um, you know, Africa taking, uh, driving the ideas, the politics, and so on. So for him, and, and my, my, my reading of him, um, he, he must have been asking himself, how can Kiswahili, which has been the language of liberation for mm -hmm. Tanzania, mm -hmm. which is the, also the language of liberation for Kenya, um, is the language of creating a new political direction for the region. Mm -hmm. And so, increasing the repertoire of literature, mm -hmm. you know, and also injecting uh, a certain orientation, a certain political orientation uh, of ideas. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and therefore, um, uh, there is that political project. And, 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 and clearly, there was that political project. But also, I think, he, he must have realized that Shakespeare was one of the best, you know, playwrights um, of the time. And therefore, uh, who better to translate? Who better to translate for East Africans to enjoy, you know, the best of, you know, of literature other than Shakespeare at the time? So I, I think that, and, and Serena is very right. He started this thing as pastime. He was relaxing and he would do his translation, you know, a couple of lines here and there, and of course a couple of mistakes. Then he publishes the, 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 the play in 1963. But there's something else that people um, do not know, that Nyerere also was writing poetry. Mm -hmm. He was writing poetry uh, and engaging with uh, Sadan Kandoro mm -hmm. and other Tanzanian poets. And therefore, it's not surprising that he also undertakes a literary project because that literary project is part of the work that he, he, he was doing at the time, um, you know, uh, taxing his imagination and doing all sorts of things. And also being a student of history, um, you know, I, 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 I think that um, to assume that he was just driving a political idea other than uh, also increasing the body of literature, um, you know, uh, bringing in issues of culture. I think that that you know the political uh, the political agenda was only part of of, of mm -hmm. his work. I think he was interested in literature, mm -hmm. just as he was interested in economics and he mm -hmm. was interested in history and so forth. We sometimes forget that he continued writing poetry, even as president. Yeah. He, he continued doing a lot of creative work, um, even as head of state. And, and, and that literary nature of the man uh, sometimes gets lost in our engagement mm -hmm. uh, with his politics of, um, of, of Ujama and, and so on. <laughs> Thank you.
that's the sound of Shaw Majorzi again. This time it's her 2021 Kiswahili release, Jamani, that signals the end of our first episode. We'll pick up this fascinating conversation with Kimani Njogu and Serena Talento in part two of Kiswahili Shakespeare's. And if you listen all the way to the end of our second episode, we'll also answer a couple of questions you may have about names and naming. Like, why is this podcast called Shake the Sword? And where exactly does the Tsukinya Shaka Center get its name? But for now, it's time to sign off. You've been listening to Shake the Sword, produced by the Tsukinya Shaka Center. The TCC is a research unit in the School of Literature, Language and Media at the University of the Witwatersrand. Our work is supported by a range of funders and partners, including Legacy Underwriting Managers, the National Institute for Humanities and Social Sciences, and the Shakespeare Society of Southern Africa. Visit our website or find us on Facebook and Twitter.